Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And if you don't have your own Bible, then there's going to be one provided for you in the seat in front of you. And um, we always say this, if you don't own a Bible, if you've never bought a Bible or no one's ever given you one, then please, by all means, it would be the greatest joy of ours if you would just take that Bible. Now, if you're using one of the, the Bibles the church is providing, we're going to be on page 569. So find that uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to begin right in the very first verse of that chapter. And um, here, I'll give you another second or two, and then we'll read what that says. I still hear some pages fluttering out there. All right, here's what we read. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which, is out, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, uh, that is, an idolater, that has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light... It becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. For the last two weeks, we've been discussing the attitude that we should take towards the physical body, what what God has created in creating our physical bodies. And because I wasn't able and still won't be able to this morning, I wasn't able to address every single nuance of of sexual holiness and what all that means. I invited you last week, if you were here, to write questions and let me know uh, things that you might like to uh, for me to address and things that arose from my message. And so today what I'm going to attempt to do with the, with the Holy Spirit's help and with the guidance of Scripture is I'm going to try to answer your questions. Now, I sent out an email earlier this week that I'm just going to be straight up with you. This is going to be probably at least a PG message, meaning that parental guidance is suggested. There may be some things that if you have a younger teenager, all of our elementary kids have been dismissed, but if you have a younger teenager, there may be an opportunity for you to have a further discussion on what they say. Now, say having said that, I will do my very best to be discreet and tax, uh, tactful so that you know that will not be necessary. One thing, a uh, suggestion that one of you made and we have done is we've turned off the uh, external speakers in the restroom and the foyer and things like that so there won't be any kind of accidental exposure that you guys would not have wanted to happen. 
So this Ephesians 5 passage today that we read this morning is complementary to the 1 Corinthians 6 chapter that we've looked at uh, the last couple of weeks. So let's just take a minute before we get started and briefly compare those two passages. In 1 Corinthians 6, you'll recall that Paul begins the passage we were looking at with these words. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, this is verse 9 by the way, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived that neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now we come to Ephesians 5, and very similarly, Paul says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The Corinthians passage, after it lays out that that high standard for entering the kingdom of, the God, of God, he goes on to, instead of correcting them, he makes this uh, effort to point them back to the gospel that they had believed. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it's verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We talked about that last week. But similarly, in Ephesians 5, what we just read, he says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He's saying that something has happened. He's, Ephesians 5, it points to a fundamental gospel-oriented shift in their very identity. And therefore, Paul, because of this shift, he appeals for holiness in every arena of their lives, including the sexual arena. He says this as a command. He says, walk because you are no longer darkness and you are light. He says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, there are three things that Paul is instructing in that little short verse. He says, first, because they're not darkness anymore, that as they were when they were in sin, of course, that they should walk in a way that is consistent with their new identity as children of light versus children of darkness. Secondly, he says that the fact that they're not darkness anymore is evidenced not by the fact that they have some church affiliation or have been through some religious ceremony or even have pious thinking, but that the evidence of their transformation is from a life that's filled with the fruit of all that is good and right and true. So in other words, there has to be a behavioral element of the evidence that they have in fact changed. Lastly, following Christ, he says, demands the relentless pursuit of personal holiness. In other words, until we see Jesus face to face, you and I should not ever consider ourselves done in the pursuit of holiness. We have not gotten to where we need to get But it's a relentless pursuit. And he appeals to them uh, for this by saying this, try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, has anybody in here ever had something in your life and and, and it occurs to you through immersion in the word, through immersion in worship and prayer, and you go, whoa, that may not be pleasing to the Lord. And see, so our lives are always about trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so it's from this framework of Ephesians 5 that I'm going to try my hardest 
to answer the questions that you gave last week. So the first question that we that was asked that I, I uh, you know, looked at was this. And by the way, I've I've written these as best as I can verbatim. So uh, they're they're just as I got them. Um, the first question was, how do we best understand the cultural context of all types of sexuality and immorality? Some issues were very different in gospel time, in the gospel times, and it makes a big difference to our current reading. So. I have to admit, before I tackle this, that there were a few ambiguities in the, in the question. I don't think they were intentional. I just, that's the way I read it. And I, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to know exactly what you meant. But let me try. Let me take a crack at it. When you say the cultural context of all types of sexuality and morality, um, I'm not sure if you mean the cultural context of the biblical times or of the 20th century. And so what I'm going to try to do, 21st century rather, and so what I'm going to try to do is address this question from both sides. In the first century Roman world, if anything, the entire sexual ethic was even more depraved than what you would find anywhere in the Western world, at least on a large scale. In other words, it was, it was fundamentally more depraved than what you would find in, say, America or Europe. There are pockets of things where it's just as bad as it was in Rome, but generally. Um, and, and by the way, before I get started, you can thank the, the uh, incoming influence of the church in the first century for changing that culture. In fact, the, the reason that things aren't as bad in our sexual mores is because we have, um, it's been resisted for the last two millennia by a Judeo-Christian sexual ethic. Can anybody agree with that statement? It, it's, it's made a big difference. So to understand this, um, in Rome, in fact, some actions that people today would consider the most debased, even in our modern culture, were considered, literally considered, virtues in Rome. In fact, if you engage in this type of activity, it's not a shameful thing, it's a virtue. Um, in my research this week, this is, some of this is a direct quote, this is what I read, prostitution was legal, public, and widespread. Pornographic paintings, not just nudes, but pornographic paintings, were featured among the art collections in respectable upper-class households. It was considered natural and unremarkable for men to be sexually attracted to teenage youths of both sexes. And pederasty was, uh, was condoned as long as the younger male partner was not a freeborn Roman. Additionally, sexuality was a core feature of Roman slave culture, of Roman slavery, because slaves were regarded as property under Roman law. An owner could use them for sex or hire them out for sexual service to other people, and the slave had no voice in that transaction whatsoever. When it came to sexual mores, women were held to a very different standard than men. A woman's value, sorry ladies, was largely in her ability to bear children. And if she could not do so, society expected her to be cast off. So your value was only in your ability to produce children. Now, all of these things were the norm. Please get this. this was, these were not exceptions. All of these horrible things I just mentioned were the norm of Roman culture, and they were considered signs of masculine and natural and national rather strength. These were the things that if you were engaged in, you bragged about, you were, you were acknowledged and awarded for being this kind of, of debased individual. 
when the church brought a brand new sexual ethic in the first century, it was not considered as another way to look at things. It was considered subversive. It was considered, considered traitorous because it attacked at what they assumed gave Rome its absolute strength, this, this ability through sex to dominate people. And so it was like, whoa, what are you doing? You're, you're attacking the very fabric of our society. And no one in that culture just agreed to disagree. Eh, you have it your way, you look at it this way. So what I ask you this morning, and I'm serious about this, what is it that we see in the history of Rome that's really, at its basic element, that much different than what we see in 2018? While certainly, I'll give you this, pederasty and pedophilia are considered to be taboo in the culture, guess what, folks? They're still very, very widespread. Even though they're considered taboo, they're widespread. In certain other ways, the sexual landscape of today is very similar to the Roman world of the New Testament. Same-sex relationships have been deemed normal, commendable, and legal. With the advent of the Me Too movement that, that sprang up in the last couple of years, we see that predatory sexual misconduct is alarmingly common. And if our spouses fail to satisfy us, we can discard them easily through the tragedy, cultural tragedy called no-fault divorce. Just throw them away. And when the church insists, as the people of God, on a higher sexual value, a, a, a higher value for the sexual dimension of our lives, we're branded as naive prudes at best. And we're branded as bigots and hate mongers at worst. We cannot just have a discussion in the, in the culture and disagree with certain people or activities. And we can't even offer to live in a spirit of civil tolerance. The culture of today, listen to me please carefully, the culture of the day, today demands full endorsement of their sexual ethic. They demand that you better agree with it and you better agree with it with a smile on your face. And they did that in the days of Rome, failing to support today the, the, the ethic that is often seen as destabilizing to the fabric of their society is seen as, you've heard this a thousand times, it's seen as being on the wrong side of history. If you don't believe me, if you think, oh, that's, that's alarmist preacher talk, if you don't believe me, ask the Christian owners of Hobby Lobby. When they resisted the Affordable Care Act's requirement to provide abortifacient drugs to their employees against their religious conscience, Where that was their viewpoint welcomed in that situation? Or when a private business owner in Colorado just recently had to go to the Supreme Court because he de declined to make a, a cake in his business, his private business, celebrating a same-sex union in conformity with his Christian beliefs. He was brought to, to trial for that. So if you assert that some issues were very different in the gospel times and it makes a big difference, a big difference rather to our current reading, I have to ask, simply ask, what exactly, please hear me, what exactly has changed? What's changed? Point it out to me. I would only see three options of things that have changed. First, we have to ask ourselves as believers if the Bible itself has changed. If so, if the Bible has changed and, and what is written in this book and how it applies to our life has changed, who, what authority has superseded it? If, if, has it been science that's superseded or cultural trends or politics? And, and if it's not still all of this, every page of it, the unchanging word of God, then I would conclude to you as your pastor this morning that none of it is. Did you hear what I said? 
I'm saying if I can rip this page out and rip that page out and throw this book away, then none of this is the Word of God. And you're wasting your time sitting here this morning. There's a lot of good stuff on TV. Because if it's not all the Word of God, none of it's the Word of God. In Matthew 24, 35, Christ himself says this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Second, if the Bible's not changed, has the nature of what is and isn't sin changed? Or has the consequences of sin changed? Again, to argue that point, you would have to disqualify all of the Word of God and, and be able to do that from some reliable standard in order to make that claim. But the things listed in Scripture, think about this. Logically think about this. The things listed in Scripture are uh, sinful, things like lying and murder and pride and selfishness. All those things, even by the larger culture, are still considered uh, sin, right? Like if I blow you away this morning, do you think the culture is going to say, hey, that's his morality. He can do what he wants. If, if I lie in court, do you think they're going to say, well, that's his perspective, that's his worldview? No, we still consider all of those things to be sinful. And well, at least as they apply to other people, we tend to have different standards for, the, for what we consider sin applying to ourselves and what we consider sin applying to other people, right? I mean, I, most of what you do is sinful, very little of what I do is sinful, if you hadn't figured that out yet. But why would sins in the sexual realm be any different from sins in the non-sexual realm? Why would they have to be removed from the list? Have we evolved past their sinfulness? And if we can agree that based on the Bible's teaching, the nature of sin hasn't changed, then surely we can agree that the consequences of sin have not changed either. And the Bible says this in Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins shall die. Not the soul that sins and the kinds of sins that are written in the B.C. or early A.D. days. It just says that the soul that sins, a blanket statement across all of humanity, the soul that sins shall die. So if we can't say the Bible has changed and the nature of sin has changed, perhaps you would suggest that human nature has changed, or at least our understanding of it. Hopefully you'll see by our very brief investigation into first century Rome, and let me tell you, the cultures that preceded Rome are no better. Hopefully you'll see that by that investigation that humanity is no more or no less broken sexually than it was five, a hundred, two thousand, or ten thousand years ago. I'm telling you, the heart of man is still cloaked in darkness. As far as our understanding of human nature goes, I'll concede that there is more understanding about the psychological complexity of life than there has ever been. I would also not deny that it's not helpful, I mentioned this last week, that because of this, to tell sexually broken people, hey, knock it off. You're not going to get very far with that. Some of these things are deeply rooted, complex, psychological trauma issues. I get that. But what I don't want you to miss today is that the Bible never ignores the way we are. And it also never ignores the way we got there. It doesn't ignore that. It's not walking around. The Bible doesn't walk around with blinders on its eyes. But it also never encourages simply to understand our brokenness. And it never encourages us, because we understand our brokenness, to simply indulge in it all. So if we're not going to ignore it or simply understand it or certainly not to indulge it, what's left for us to do in response to seeing the ugliness that resides inside of us? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, even from now on, therefore, we regard no one 
according to the flesh. See, what Paul is saying is that I used to be able to look at you and you used to be able to look at me and you'd say, good guy, bad guy. Does good stuff, does bad stuff. But he's talking not to the whole world, but he's talking to the church. And in the church, I can look at Dave Walt and I can say, I don't say good guy, bad guy. I say redeemed guy. And I look over at Chris King and I don't say good guy, bad guy. I say redeemed guy. And I'll look at Michelle Cologne and say good girl, bad girl. I say redeemed girl. I look at Leslie Harper and I say redeemed girl. I'm not regarding them according to the flesh in who they used to be. Because guess what? I used to be somebody too. But the one you're looking at right now with all the things I'd be terribly embarrassed for you to know about my past, the one that's looking at you right now, I'm just a redeemed guy. I've been saved and washed by the blood of Jesus. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified like we read last week. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, what he's saying is the people of the first century looked at Christ as like some crazy, you know, magic trick magician wandering around the, the you know, the, the first century Judea. And, and because of this, they ticked some people off and he got killed. But now, because of what the Holy Spirit's done, we don't look at Christ that way. We go, whoa, that was the Lamb of God sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. We have a much different perspective on Christ than we would have then. So what does all this mean? Verse 17, therefore, if anyone, anyone, male, female, formerly perverted, formerly gay, formerly whatever, if anyone is in Christ, raise your hand if that applies to you. If anyone is in Christ, good news, folks, he's a new creation. All that old garbage has passed away and behold, the new has come. As followers of Christ, we don't look at our flesh as it is and conclude that that's all there is. In fact, we don't regard the flesh at all anymore. We believe by faith that God has made us brand new. He doesn't, and get it, when I, when I say he makes us brand new, it's not like when I get a new kitchen or a new bathroom. He doesn't remodel us working with the stuff we already got. He resurrects us from scratch. Thank you, God. For all of those reasons, I respectfully, very respectfully, but strongly disagree that there's any fundamental thing that should make a big difference in our current reading of Scripture. I believe this is a large, unreasonable, and dangerous assumption. So our second question is tough, very tough, one of the toughest that I was given, but it gets asked frequently. Almost any time you talk about these sort of things, gender-related issues, this sort of thing, and it's a fair question, it's not an easy one. And it's this, what do you say to a person who was born with both male and female parts, what is commonly known as a hermaphrodite? Another term for this somewhat rare condition is called intersex. It refers to persons who are born with reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical pattern for what we understand as female or male. And not only, listen to me carefully, I obviously don't know if, if uh, some person who wrote this question is just curious or if they have dealing with somebody that they love or even themselves that might be carrying that burden. But I want to say to all of you that not only does this condition and the psychological, emotional, and physical confusion that accompanies it give cause for deep distress and great confusion from those who experience it, but it calls into question, this is why the question always comes up, it calls into question the very nature of what it means to be male or female and created in the image of God. 
So it's a very fair question. I commend you for asking it. But before I tackle what to say to the person that's experiencing this, so you have a better idea, let's talk just a little bit more about the condition itself. And first, I want you to get this, that it's a stretch, and I'll explain in a minute. It's a stretch to assume that someone, anyone, can be absolutely both male and female simultaneously. Let me explain that in just a moment. But intersex, what it actually describes is a whole range of conditions affecting the development of the human reproduction system. What normally happens is that instead of the normal XX chromosome pattern in female, XY in male, there seems there, there usually is additional or missing chromosomes in people with these conditions. Beginning in the 1950s, the treatment protocol, protocol was to determine to the best of their ability what caused the condition and then to assign a sex based on the appearance of the sexual anatomy to assign a sex for the child, surgically modifying the infant's body to, to conform to the assigned sex. And parents, when they took their child home, were encouraged to show no ambiguity about the child's chosen gender and to raise the child accordingly, whether as a boy or as a girl problem with that and this is the problem it caused a lot of frustration on the part of children who may not agree with the assessment of the doctor because this approach makes a fundamental error in my humble opinion it assumes that gender is merely a social construct something we discover versus what we are more recently, because of this, doctors have shifted away from that old protocol and they look at the essential chromosomal makeup of the child, believing that chromosomes don't lie about the fundamental essence of the child. What does that mean? Well, one of them was quoted as saying, if there is a Y chromosome, you have to be very worried about raising the child as a female because nature indicates through the chromosomes that that child is male. With all of that said, what, we, what should we say to someone, perhaps even our own child, who is born with this condition? Whatever we should say, I think we would all agree, needs to be just dripping with the love of God and regard the sacredness of all human life. That's where we start. Amen? But there is more. See, the larger culture makes a huge mistake, huge mistake. When they look at things like intersex, same-sex desires, gender confusion, gender fluidity, no matter what the legitimate psychological or physiological origin, and they assume that as things are, as we found them, are the way they ought to be. It's a fundamental mistake to make that assumption. It's a huge assumption. Why? Because the Bible, on the other hand, doesn't look at the broken world through a Pharisee's perspective of legalism, you know, like the, the disciples did when the man was born blind. He said, all right, Jesus, lay it on us. Who sinned, this guy or his parents? What a Pharisee or a legalist does. The Bible doesn't do that. It also doesn't look through, uh, through the world through rose-colored glasses and say, well, you know, um, obviously this is good and this is what it should be and that sort of thing. The Bible doesn't do that. What it does do, or what it doesn't do also, it doesn't condemn people merely for being broken in any way. I mean, it definitely condemns us all as sinners, but it doesn't condemn us just for simply being broken. But it calls us all to recognize every one of us can't deny or lie about who we are. We've got to recognize when we come to Christ our brokenness. But what the Bible will never do, you will not find this ever once in this book, it never puts a positive spin on our brokenness. Never. It never says that when I crave things, 
that I should not crave. There's not one verse in this scripture that gives me an excuse for doing that. Not one. It never says, there's not one verse that I could point to you in this entire collection of 66 books that says, Mark, it's okay you were born that way. It doesn't say, Mark, it's okay because your mama treated you that way. Mark, it's okay because you have a genetic propensity for this. Never. What it does do is it makes us stare right in the face of our brokenness and it gives us hope. Whether the thing it results in sin, like some of the things I mentioned, or whether it's just a fact, an unfortunate fact of life, like an intersex condition. It gives us hope. I love this verse. Romans 8, listen to this. It's a verse of incredible hope. It says, beginning in verse 19, it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, because of sin, the world was made to experience things that it was never meant to experience. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Listen to this last part, the redemption of our bodies. How many of you have, especially talking to you that are maybe over 40, have noticed that your, your body is kind of starting to betray you just a little bit, you know? You think about all your glorious athletic days in high school, all the times when you were the the uh, uh, object of lust for all the, the men or ladies, whichever the case may be, and now you look and you go, what have you done to me? What have you done to me? Let me tell you something. Some of you have gotten, I got news in the foyer today of a, of a loved one, of someone that goes to church who just found out that their, their mother has Parkinson's. People have diabetes, they have cancer, they have all kinds of issues. I think of people that, that um, just wonderful, lovely people that now are watching a spouse or even themselves are enduring through dementia. Let me tell you something, this body is going to stab you in the back. But that's, <laughs> for those of you who didn't hear Mackie said and everywhere else. But no matter what this body does to me, it is under the, the, the decree of another verdict that says that there is i can i can watch it fall apart in hope that someday someday as we sang this morning christ is going to descend and everything about this that i don't like that i've had to endure every cell in it is going to be made brand new and perfect forever praise god see the bible speaks of a time when everything every birth defect Every injustice, every sickness, every disease, all of it will be set right. Everything. And until that, we wait. We wait here in broken bodies. We wait here with our corrupted hearts. And we wait here for the day of our deliverance. Not in depression and discouragement, but in hope that that day is on its way. But that doesn't suggest when we say that, you say, oh, great, so I'm stuck with this. No, it doesn't suggest that we're just stuck and that God doesn't do anything in us. Now, it means that we, we won't experience the full restoration of all things until that day. But even that shouldn't discourage us. Why? Because God has promised to bring glory out of the worst of our trials. Some of you have gone through some pretty sorry, lousy stuff right now. 
I know it. Things you've shared with me, things in your family, things in your own moral struggles, things you know that, that, that make no sense and they're painful. But God has promised to bring glory out of the worst of our trials, the worst of our difficulties, no matter how ugly they are. Paul had something in his life that he never quite identifies for us, that he says, I begged God three times to take this away. In fact, let's read it right out of the scripture. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, So to keep me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, in other words, the things God had showed him, he said, A thorn was given me in the flesh, something troubling, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And three times... Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said this to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect, Paul, in your weakness. Therefore, Paul comes to this conclusion, I will boast, I will brag, I will sing, I will dance all the more gladly because of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. Why? For when I'm weak, then I am strong. The last question for today is this. What do we do with relationships? This is a great question. What do we do with relationships that are sinful, not just sexually, but also romantically? And I believe the question being asked is about the spiritual benefit or weakness of our relationships. And this is, like I said, a great question, especially after we've examined the many aspects of sinful, clearly sinful behaviors in the past two weeks. What about the relationships themselves if you take sex out of the equation? If I'm at liberty... To restate the question, I might ask it this way. Is there ever a time when the sexual behavior in a relationship can be outwardly moral while the relationship itself can be displeasing to God in one way or another? In response to this, I would point out, listen carefully, that anything in our lives, anything has the potential to become an idol to us, even things that would be otherwise good. The highest ideal of relationships, just so you know clearly where I stand, the highest ideal of relationship between two human beings is heterosexual, covenant, Christ-exalting marriage between one man and one woman. That's the peak. That is the pinnacle of what God intended for us as human beings. It, it, when God established that higher, highest rather of human relationships in the Garden of Eden, he had stated it is not good for man to be alone. And as a man who's been happily married for 25 years, I say a hearty amen. I would be a disaster if I didn't have a wife. I would have come here to preach, probably wearing two different shoes, huge barbecue stain on my shirt. I would have weighed about 100 more pounds. I would, you know, probably would have forgotten to comb my hair. I would have had no money in the bank, all this stuff. My wife has rescued me in a thousand different ways. Amen, men? Some of you are too chicken to admit it. You, you just had an argument this morning, and you don't want her to have the upper hand by you admitting it. I know what's going on there. See, Jesus ordained that human life would become satisfying through the coming together of the sexes in monogamous lifelong commitment. But he also means, he also made it the means, rather, of their being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth. Proverbs 18.22 sums all this up when it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And all the men said, all the men said like they meant it. Maybe I should give them one more try. Okay, there you go. 
says they found a good thing and they obtained favor from the Lord. But Paul goes even further in Ephesians 5. I said this last week. And he tells us that the the marriage was destined from the very beginning to portray in an ongoing act of living proclamation, living worship, the submission given uh, of love by the church to Christ and the sacrificial love perpetually given to the church from Christ. That's what marriage means. And while marriage is, listen carefully, especially single people, while marriage is the highest ideal of human interaction, of human-to-human relationship, it is not the highest relationship that human beings can experience. It's not, single folks. There you go. Cheer on up. Cheer on up. Jesus prayed to the Father the night before he was to be crucified, and these are the words that he said. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is why single people are not to be regarded as second-class citizens in the kingdom because they can know God and Jesus Christ and experience eternal life both right here and in the hereafter. Christians believe, true Christians believe, that whether you're married, whether you're single, that knowing Jesus, obeying, serving, honoring, and communing with him is the highest goal of this life. I want with every fiber of my being to please this lady over here, but that's not the highest thing. Come on now. I want her to enjoy being married to me and find some joy in serving me, but not the highest thing for her either. The highest thing is to know the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So the way we determine whether our relationships are healthy or idolatrous is by looking at how well they propel us toward the goal of knowing Christ, not by the presence of sexual purity alone, as important as that is. Don't mistake what I'm saying. It's very important, but that's not how we know the health of a relationship. We know it by how that person propels us to know Christ. I can honestly tell you, testify in court, that I wanted to marry Ginger because I never knew anyone who loved Jesus like she did. And there was never a person who walked the earth that wasn't Jesus that made me want to love Jesus as much as she did. So if you're struggling with this question, ask yourself, what is it that I'm trying to get in this relationship? Ask yourself, but don't lie to yourself. Be honest. If they disagree with my convictions, sexual or non-sexual, or if they infringe on my devotion to Christ, who wins? Who wins? That person or Jesus? If there's something in that person that propels you towards Jesus Christ, then perhaps that relationship may be God's design for you. But if it pulls you away from Christ in any way, beware. You might be giving yourself over to an idol, even one with an attractive body, a charming smile, and a winsome personality. All idols don't look like tiki gods with scary faces and big claws and whatnot. Some of them are downright hot. You hear me? You hear me? Can I talk real with you? You should also know, for those of you that are like feeling pretty smug about your relationship, and even I might direct this just a tiny bit even towards the married among you, that even the most healthy relationship can become an idolatrous one with a subtle shift of attitude. Beware. So that's enough for today. If you have more questions, just like last week, grab a card, write it on the back, and do it anonymously or not anonymously, and stick it in the, in the uh, box, and we'll find the time. We probably won't do this again next week. We'll find the time to answer those, but I'd love to get to address some of your questions. Um, I also want to uh, leave you with a couple of thoughts. Um, remember that sex 
is for God's design. And all the church said, he never intended you to restrain it, ignore it, or in, uh, but to enjoy it. Enjoy it. God's design was for your enjoyment of sex, but, but in the most satisfying way possible within the context of covenant marriage. A prohibition on anything outside of this perfect design is not prudishness, but it's protective. God is trying to spare you pain, heartache, all physical problems, all kinds of things. It's, it's protective. Anything that God has decreed, this is the first thing you need to learn as a believer. Anything God has decreed, he has decreed for your good. That's what he wants. And never for our punishment and never to deny some intrinsic need in our human makeup. He's trying to help you. Our sexual purity is vitally important to our Christian witness. Without it, as Paul told the Corinthians, we would open the possibility for the name of Christ to be blasphemed among unbelievers. He that, uh, he, uh, God will not fail to hold us accountable for our causing blasphemy among unbelievers. Though some things about our sexual desire and departure from God's design coupled with our natural sinful condition can be painful, not denying that, faithfulness to God's decree, I promise you this, Faithfulness to God's decree, even when it's difficult, will be rewarded. It will be. Paul, in wrapping up his series of two letters to his young protege, Timothy, he knows he's about to be beheaded for preaching the gospel. And he says this, says, Timothy, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my race. I've kept the faith. Because of this, henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So if you're here this morning and you're in a battle for your own sexual purity or just maybe some pain from something that you've done or has been done to you or something that just you were born with, any of those things, I'm encouraging you with all the love that I have for you to fight the good fight. Run your race. Keep the faith. Finish your course. Keep running. Keep running. It's worth it. It's worth it. And can I tell you another little secret? No one here has anything anything to be ultimately ashamed of because i guarantee you if you told me or anyone else any of these other elders the worst of the worst in our minds we think oh yeah that's just like this guy and that girl and this guy where there's nothing in this room that's that's common only to you you hear me not a single thing in this room that's common only to you so say that to make this point sometimes i can't fight the good fight by myself let me restate that i can never fight the good fight by myself I can never run the race by myself. I can never finish my course myself. I need you. Do you believe that? Thank you, because I didn't want you to think that I didn't, because I do. I need you, and you need me, and you need others. So we're going to end up like we always do. We're going to celebrate the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus at the Lord's Supper. So if I could have the elders come forward and take their places at the table, we're going to pray for uh, just a real revelation of I say this a lot when we when we take communion together, but I just want to point this out, that the thing we celebrate in communion points to a perfect Jesus that was broken. And do you know why he was broken? So that you could be whole. So there's some of you here today that sexually, since that's the topic, are not whole, and you're not even close to it. But Jesus Christ was broken so that you could be absolutely whole. Some of you are here and you are so stained, you know it. And I would be cheating you if I lied to you and told you you're not. You're so stained. You have just allowed through moral decisions and things your soul to be dragged through the mud. But Jesus, when his body was broken, his blood poured out and it stained everything. And his stain 
was so that you could be spotless, clean, righteous, holy. No matter what the catalog of crap that's in your mind right now of the reasons you couldn't be, Jesus will dismiss it with one quick bath in his blood. That's it. You'll be clean. His stain makes you holy. Next week, we're going to baptize a couple of people that have just discovered this glorious fact. And we welcome you. We want you to believe today, to trust, put your trust in Jesus. Don't put your trust in Jesus after you figure it out, because if I can be real frank with you, you ain't going to figure it out. Just if your heart is pulling you to put your trust in Jesus, just do it. Right? Right? Church, right? All of us here that are believers in Christ, we had a moment just like this where we had to say, this ain't working for me. Jesus has been revealed to me, and I, I want to follow him. So I invite you to do the same thing this morning. If you need help with that, Pastor David, myself, Daryl, Randy, we would all be honored to talk to you this morning. Just wait till we're done and pull us aside, and we'll give you all the time you need. Okay? Paul says to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Anybody ready to remember the Lord Jesus this morning? Let's come forward. Let me pray for you, and let's come forward and take uh, take the elements of communion. Father, we thank you so much for what you've done in God saving us and healing us. Lord, we can all think of times when, Lord, we put our brokenness on full display, Lord God, to our own shame, to our own detriment. And Lord, those of us who have found life in you, thank you so much for the glory of your rescue, for the precious gift of your forgiveness. And so, Father, we ask right now that you would extend that to every single soul in this room that hasn't experienced it yet. Let them find you, Lord Jesus. And for those of us who have found it, Lord God, if we have drifted from you and we are putting our trust back in things that are destroying us, God, we pray that you would let this remembrance of your sacrifice draw us back right to the middle of where you are. And Father, Father, above all, Lord Jesus, for those of us who, God, are just still in the, in the throes of the joy of your redemption, Lord God, let this communion, God, let it elicit in us glorious praise. For you're only worthy, you're only worthy of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.